0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of EconoDay Unplugged. It's Thursday the 4th of June 2020. Mark Pender is stateside, Brian Jackson joins us from Sydney and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. Better news on the Covid-19 crisis and the ongoing phase relaxation of national lockdowns continue to underpin hopes that many of the world's major economies are starting to head in the right direction. And that's reflected in the buoyancy of equity markets as well as recent strong gains in the traditionally more risky currencies. Nonetheless, most leading indicators are still only pointing to a slower pace of decline, not an actual return to positive growth. And that despite a record collapse in output in March and April. And there's plenty else going on to offer reason for caution, too. In particular, you don't need a good memory to recall that for much of last year, it seemed that investors were almost wholly focused on global trade, and recent developments here are being uniformly negative, notably the dramatic deterioration in US-China relations, which could ultimately prove to be a major threat to the global economic recovery. So with that in mind, let's head to the Southern Hemisphere. And Mr. Jackson, Brian, do economies in your part of the world in general seem to be turning a corner? And apart from anything else, with terms like Cold War being bandied about, how's Hong Kong in particular holding up following Beijing's latest crackdown?
1: Sure. I mean, there, there is a lot going on, as you said. And, uh, you know, it is uh, very interesting to, to track the economic data at the moment because it's really showing you pretty clearly that the impact of, of some of these moves, but also I think starting to provide a few signs that, uh, you know, there might be a bit of recovery uh, in the second half of the year. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll just start with the PMI surveys because they're obviously the, the most up to date, yeah. uh, readings that we do have. And, you know, they've just been out in the last couple of days. So they're, they're fresh off the presses and they, you know, again, pretty interesting, uh, China, um, Obviously, China was when the economic in- impact hit first, and so they had you know, very weak numbers a couple of months ago, but the PMI survey numbers, both the official PMI and the, uh, and the one that's provided by uh, market economics, uh, they have shown signs that China is starting to build a bit of momentum, You know, still way below the levels that we saw uh, in terms of the level of activity uh, at the start of the year, but at least picking itself up off the floor and starting to... Um, you know, make some positive movements so that's China okay so that's so China looks to be you know, a little bit ahead of the curve uh, in terms of where everyone else is and then so what we're seeing with everyone else is that the the, the data is still very very weak as you would expect from you know what we've uh, been hearing and seeing in terms of the of the lockdowns of those economies so so countries like China um, India Japan uh, Hong Kong Singapore the PMI surveys this week Again, very weak. Also, Australia. When you look at all the monthly data coming out of Australia, very weak. Um, some, you know, just very striking numbers showing the the the, the, the you know the absolute peak. I think of, of the problems.
2: Hey, Brian. Hi. Uh, this is Mark. I have a question yep. uh, on the the timing of the COVID impact on China. Now that was yeah the early in Jan, uh, it was a january and february now that struck separately apart from hong kong and singapore and japan uh, and completely uh an isolated month or so just where the effect was in china
1: yeah it it it, it, it was really seen in february of course the, the problem with uh looking at chinese data uh at that time of the year is also the impact of the chinese new year uh shutdowns but yeah i think it's 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 clear there it was sort of mainly, you know, the, the biggest impact was in February, and then elsewhere in the region it started, it was more like a March, April story.
2: Okay, now uh, I have another question I, I, on the one you were talking about, the PMI that was produced in, in con, uh, conjunction with uh, market economics. Is that called Cakeson, C A A?
1: Yeah, that's in China it is, yes. No. Yeah, it has it, a different uh, sort of sponsor in, in different markets, it, but yeah, that's the, that's the Chinese but one.
2: Is it still a semi, is that Cakeson still a semi official? organization, and you know what I'm getting at.
1: Uh, I do know what you're getting at. Uh, I think that's sort of um, a semi-official organization. But uh, so, you know, you make your assessment of, of what that means. But generally speaking, um, I think, you know, the, the market PMI surveys have had a pretty good track record of, of being, a, um, you know, a, a reliable indicator. So, uh, you know, I, I still do like to, to um, you know, pay uh, good attention to to what those surveys are saying so
0: in, yeah sorry it's in, in terms of the you know, the actual covid numbers themselves out of china now yeah. is the view out there that it's kind of all over or is it the case that they think it may be over and there's still a risk of a second wave you know what's the kind of overall sense out there because this is i suppose for, you know for a lot of other countries you know what's happening out there other countries are hoping may well be the case in, in their neck of the woods as well
1: Uh, I I think that, you know, they do have ongoing concerns that there could be, um, you know, a secondary uh, wave. But uh, um, at this stage, that hasn't eventually, I don't think. And again, people um, do have some skepticism about the actual numbers that that go out out there. But it doesn't look like we ever had a, a big public health problem in some of the other major cities, Beijing, Shanghai and you know in other parts of the country so that gives a bit of confidence i think um, to (laughs) the overall situation and again what we're seeing i think across the rest of the region uh, you know are are significant public health uh improvements you know whether you know hong kong has had a very um very great results uh from from this pandemic Uh, i think taiwan korea japan you know they're starting to see improvements and uh, down here in australia and in new zealand also we've with um you know we can see the light at the end
0: of the tunnel as well in terms of hong kong i've got to ask you i mean this latest um you know the crackdown are you know there's a lot of talk i suppose out of the western press suggesting that this could be a major problem now for hong kong in terms of its, its reputation and its standing as an international financial center is that the sense within hong kong as well
1: yes um from from the business community, that's definitely uh, a, a concern. I think from the broader uh, general public, you know, they have just more immediate concerns about what does it mean just for, you know, the the governance and the and the judicial system there mm-hmm. in Hong Kong. So yeah, it's 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 definitely a, a major issue, and uh, this is just sort of the latest um, thing that has actually hit you know the the Hong Kong uh, economy for for a couple of years now. So. You know, the PMI numbers that come out of Hong Kong have been you know, indicating contraction in their economy for well over 18 months. So, you know, they had the US-China trade disputes. Uh, then they had all the, the civil unrest that took place in mm-hmm. Hong Kong last year. Then you had the impact of the, of the pandemic across the region you know, hitting the economy. And now you've got this latest uh, uh, development. So, yeah, it's, it's really been a, a very tough period for the Hong Kong economy. And it's really hard to see how um, it, it um, you know gets back on its feet uh, anytime soon. Has it hit the currency at all? Well, it, you know they have maintained that uh, that uh, link with the US dollar pretty uh, um, consistently. So it hasn't really been seen there. They've just been sort of moving with whatever the, the US dollar does. Mm. So that's sometimes uh, provided a bit of support to uh, their competitiveness. Um, when the U.S. dollar has weakened um, uh, over that period, but it hasn't really had a, 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 you know, a huge impact yet.
2: Has there been any? I guess over the what, 40 years or so they've had that peak, there's been a, a couple of attempts to bust it by speculators. Is, is yeah. that works? Or is that anyone talking about that?
1: No, I, I haven't heard a lot of uh, discussion about that uh, at the moment. You know, I can remember that. There, yeah, there definitely have been times um, over over the journey where you have had a lot of discussion about it and it's come under a bit of pressure and the and the Hong Kong authorities have had to you know step in to defend that peg but it doesn't seem to be a, a great uh, sense of pressure on it at, at the moment so you know it's uh, just really uh, means that the only tool that they have available to them is is fiscal and so they, they have been um, doing a fair bit on, on that front to try and support the economy but uh, you yeah, know the, the headwinds are just so strong at the moment.
0: Okay, thanks for that. Quickly, um, your part of the world, literally, Australia, Um, it sounds as if the RBA was just a little bit more positive in terms of its latest uh, latest comments.
1: Yeah, probably uh, even a little bit more than a little bit more positive. I think they are uh, seeing, uh, you know, we are starting to see a bit of confidence uh, amongst officials and uh, sort of the the business community as well that, um, you know, there there is going to be a, a decent rebound in the second half of this year. You know, as I said earlier, the, the data that we are getting right now is very weak, uh, and uh, you know just shows the the scale of the the impact uh, in, in the first few months. But uh, you know the good news is that we have had a lot of uh, progress on the public health uh, front, um, and what that means, of course, is that um, restrictions on households and businesses are getting eased um, at a pretty consistent pace. Uh, you've also got uh you know the the policy response that was delivered in uh over the last few months you know you'd expect that to kick in over the next few months as well so there's starting to be a few tailwinds I, I think for uh economic activity in australia and um you know hopefully we will, we will see a decent uh rebound uh, by the end of the year
0: okay let us hope so okay thanks for that right then mr pender of course, it is Employment Week yet again, it seems already. Yes. So yes. how bad this time? And I've got to ask you, I mean, what chance that it's going to be overshadowed by, overshadowed by this current political unrest? And I, and I suppose I've got to ask also, you know, what chance are these protests of actually having of impacting the data if they continue?
2: Well, that was uh, a um, a greater question. Um, the George Floyd protests um, a couple of days ago, or actually uh, maybe just yesterday, but last night the um, the looting uh, quieted down, um, and uh, so if that continues, I would imagine the uh, economic impact uh, w- will prove to be limited. Uh, we didn't see any in the weekly store sales uh, Redbook report any. Contraction, but, um, you know, in in line with uh, prior uh, weeks of contraction. So I don't imagine that um, the social unrest uh, will have much impact um, on the uh, data. um, But uh, as far as, you know, the data already is going to be extremely weak, Um, we we didn't have motor vehicle sales pop up. Uh, in May the, the, those numbers came out yesterday and that was a, 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 a bit of a surprise. so but the rest of the retail sales sector is not going probably going to be uh, deeply in contraction again as the jobs market is. For the Friday's uh, jobs report, um, it, today Thursday we had um, we had jobless claims and they came in just under 2 million. Uh, let me just double check that. And um, that, so that number has been consistently coming down um, at 1.877 million. But over the last, um, since mid-March, when this effects, when the COVID effects started in the labor market, 43 million Americans have filed uh, claims. Um, And for payrolls, for payroll jobs, uh, apart from uh, self-employed or contractors, uh, we're looking at the candidate consensus is contraction of 7.725 million uh, for May. That would follow 20.5 million in April with the unemployment rate almost at expected to be tw- uh, up about five percentage points to uh, 19.8%, just under 20%. So what's interesting or not interesting, what is uh, sad or unfortunate is that even though restrictions are beginning to be lifted here and uh the, it hasn't helped uh, 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 control job destruction very much at all. Two million jobs a week have been, are, are, are going out the door. So um, uh, so that is – it, 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 the idea that – and I think the markets are – the stock market uh, are, you know, th- that we'll get a nice, clean, neat, uh, and tidy uh, bounce back. I'm not so sure. Uh, I think there might be – You know, structural changes in the labor market and uh, that will not only um, reduce demand because people have fewer jobs, but also uh, reduce the amount of um, products and services. And we've been talking about inflation. If there's fewer products and services, that could be inflationary. um, and, I, you know, I'm not sure people are, are thinking are, are on those lines yet, certainly the policymakers here in the Federal Reserve um, don't see much risk at all of inflation. Even though consumer, the consumer expectations readings that we're getting from the University of Michigan are, are going through the roof. And that is a complete diametric opposite of actual inflation numbers which have been going down. Now, did I see an inflation expectation number out of Europe that was also going up, Jeremy?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's interesting too, in terms of inflation expectations because, for Europe, because of course we had the, the ECB announcement um, over here today, their, their June meeting, and within that is quite interesting because they've actually slashed their inflation numbers quite considerably. So, as far as these are the headline numbers, but as far as 2020 is concerned, they're now looking for uh, an annual inflation rate of just 0.3%. That's down from 1.1% in their previous forecast just three months ago. They've only got at 0.8% in. 2001 and 1.3% in 2002 so if you take that literally as far as ECB policy is concerned it simply means that the current stance is not expected to achieve the inflation goals which is the HICP inflation measure being close to the 2% mark so it would appear to be at least as far as central banks and says, this is certainly true of the ECB but it's also true of the likes of the Bank of England as well the general view over here is that the the COVID-19 effects at least over the foreseeable future they expect to be ha- well expect to have much more of a dampening impact upon the demand side rather than the supply side so it tends to mean that you know we'll end up with an output gap which means that you know, inflationary pressures per se are going to be you know, moving towards the south rather than the north mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and that appears to be you know, how policy is, is currently working over here. Well, Did uh, you
2: make of the um, of the ECB expanding um significantly expanding uh, their asset uh, direct buying program, even though it, it doesn't seem to be in the same program it was before. And also, what did you make of the market's reaction to it?
0: Well, I've got to say, I mean, I suppose I've tended to be quite hard on the ECB in the past. Cause I think they've tended to be, if anything, well behind the curve in terms of what market, financial markets and economists have been expecting. But to give them credit, I think they actually came out and made quite a good, quite a good fist of it today. So what they did then, they um, they didn't do anything with interest rates, which I don't think anyone expected anyway, because uh, to all intents and purposes, I think that interest rates, as far as the ECB is concerned, have effectively reached their bottom. So we've got a deposit rate down at 05 Five percent um, in terms of bank borrowing from the ECB, if the banks actually go out and lend as the ECB wants, that minus 0.5% can be reduced as low as 1%. So effectively, I think now they, they really are giving away money into the financial system at the moment. And I don't think they want to do any more of that because of distortions it caused, and, and we talked about on previous podcasts. But what they can do, is of course, is to, is, is to change their quantitative easing. Now, today's meeting, I think, as we uh, touched upon, on previously was an important one because it took place against the background of this ongoing dispute with the, the German High Court, which from its own perspective regards the, the asset purchase programme, or at least I should say that the public sector public sector asset purchase programme within overall quantitative easing. The German High Court thinks it's effectively illegal and they don't think the ECB should be buying as many bonds uh, as, as they are. However, a completely separate aspect of quantitative easing is a pandemic emergency pro, uh, purchase program. There's lots of anachronism using this, obviously. But anyway, what the ECB decided to do today was to boost this so called PET program, which isn't covered by the German court ruling and they came out and reduced it quite significantly by 600 billion euros up to a, a current total now of 1.35 trillion euros
2: oh, oh, they increased it right they, uh, they- yeah. Now, how? Can, why is it separate? Uh, is it, uh, the effect on on the market going to be uh, the same? I mean, if they're going to be, are they going to be buying different kinds of bonds in this? Uh, in many, well, program? in
0: many ways, not really. I think uh, what it is, it was introduced because they wanted to introduce a completely separate aspect to quantitative easing, or at least a different vehicle. Although ultimately, it comes down to you know the, the, the same sort of thing in terms of the assets they're going to buy, but they wanted something which was separate which was purely and simply um, associated with a COVID-19 virus so as and when the coronavirus is finished with then they can simply withdraw that the PEP the PEPP and just continue if they want to with existing uh, asset, pi- asset uh, purchase program the APP um, but because in particular this time round the, the politics were involved by using the the PEP, an increase in that significantly and crucially by more than markets were expected. They've been able to provide what could well prove to be a significant stimulus to the Eurozone economy, which certainly needs it at the moment, and at the same time you know, kind of indicate to the, you know, the German High Court, well look you know, we're maintaining our independence if we want to increase quantitative easing we're going to do it, even if you don't like certain aspects of our economic policy. So I think it was important and it was interesting to how, as you mentioned, how some of these markets reacted. For a start, we saw the euro rally on it, and I think that's a reflection of the fact that it was larger, a larger stimulus than anticipated, so that much more beneficial for the eurozone economy. And in particular, we saw some significant improvements in the what they call the peripheral eurozone bond markets so over the likes of Italy and Spain and Greece. And that's because a lot of the purchases coming under the, the PEP program will be directed towards those countries, those bond markets, which have been most under pressure. Uh, and that's clearly going to be the southern Mediterranean. So I think on the whole, they've actually managed this, I personally think, quite nicely. I think by by and large, the markets themselves have taken it pretty well. Um, And I suppose it's worth mentioning quickly that's been too much on, on Eurozone policy. We've had quite a lot going on in terms of the fiscal side as well over the last week or so. Um, And by that, I mean, we had the EU Commission announced uh, last week that it would be um, at least trying to launch what it wants to call uh, the next generation EU fund. Now, this thing raises a previously proposed Franco-German package of stimulus, which was worth 500 billion euros to 750 billion, which is in itself. good news because it's more positive for the economy. And more importantly, in some ways than that, it's going to be financed in the capital markets. So it actually represents a major step forward in terms of movement towards a pan-European fiscal policy, which is certainly something that ECBs wanted to see for a long time. And again, it's particularly good news for the heavily indebted countries like Italy, because they're going to benefit disproportionately from, from the various handouts. However, being the EU, of course, there's, there's always difficulties and, and problems on, on the road. And in this case, we still have this so called frugal four by which I mean Austria, Denmark, Sweden and the Netherlands who think that the disbursement really should be tied much more to loans rather than grants. So it's not actually certain it will actually get through in the first place. There's an EU leaders meeting set for June the 18th and 19th of this month where we'll have um, the, the heads of the various governments discussing what's going on. But it seems increasingly like if this uh, programme is actually going to be passed through and delivered, it's going to take a long time and it's going to run well into August. All- if not beyond that I think that's one reason why the ECB opted to do what it did today simply because although the fiscal side on a on a pan-european basis is gradually evolving it's doing so too slowly and just quickly to round off in terms of fiscal you know, policy in Europe, in some ways almost more importantly on a short term basis, has been developments going on with Germany which has really taken the lead I think in terms of you know, trying to reflate well obviously its economy but also the eurozone economy as well and Angela Merkel looks like she's managed to agree an additional what, over about 130 billion euros worth of fiscal stimulus for the German economy that's going to include a, a cut in VAT by three percentage points. And going back to your point about uh, about inflation, well, of course, a cut in VAT is going to have a direct impact on inflation in Germany. And I guess off the top of my head, it could, if it's passed on fully, reduce inflation by Germany, what that one one percentage point or so or something like that. So we're talking about, you know, a zero or negative inflation rate in Germany as a result of this. But, you know, we do see, in particular, national governments across the Eurozone going down their own route simply because at the end of the day, they're not convinced that a pan-European fiscal policy is actually going to work. Um, OK, that said, what else have we got? Um, I should mention Brexit from my side, I suppose, because we had the fourth round of the Brexit talks kicked off uh, yesterday on That's uh, Tuesday. Uh, at the moment, I must say it's a real worry for sterling markets because they don't appear to be really getting anywhere. And it's particularly important because we're running out of time. I think for a lot of investors, you know, they're well aware of the fact that Brexit, if we don't get some kind of trade deal, would be extremely bad news for both the UK and the European economies. Um, And that really then means that with this COVID-19 crisis, you know, adding to the, the downside potential to economies everywhere, they really want to get a deal if they can do. So the UK government's attitude currently still appears to be, well, look, if we haven't got basically really solid progress on the some kind of the post-Brexit trade deal by the end of June and the transition period will, at the moment ends at the end of this year, uh, then Boris Johnson, he's prepared to walk away. And that would be extremely bad news. Now, of course, it may be politicking, as we've seen previously in the past in all these Brexit negotiations, but it's something which for sterling markets is going to be particularly important over the coming weeks. And so say just remind people that ultimately the UK, well, we've left the European Union, but to all intents and purposes, we're still part of it in terms of the way trading links and so on operate at the moment and until the end of 2020. Once we get into 2021, the UK really will be on its own. So what like, do you think is going to happen? I've got to be honest, my own bet is that both sides, I would hope, are sensible enough to realise that a no deal a no-deal trade Brexit now would be absolutely disastrous in the sense that it's not as if we're working in normal times. We're talking about a Eurozone economy, a UK economy, a global economy which has been hit massively unprecedentedly by this coronavirus. So to add the uncertainty associated with what's going to happen to Brexit and no trade deal would be absolutely disastrous. So I think although we've got on paper these various deadlines dotted over the next several months, um, I think they'll keep talking and I would hope I mean I really don't know your guess is as good as mine but I'd hope by the time we get into sort of you know close to the end of the year that they'll come out with some kind of agreement which is going to involve compromises on both sides but hopefully you know actually ends up with something with a trade deal which which does not upset the markets to the extent it certainly could do if they don't get one
1: are, are there other major trade deals in the pipeline for the UK
0: well, the, um, the U.K. announced as soon as it came out with the idea that you know, bre- they wanted Brexit. Was it, They'd be looking for trade deals, you know, improved trade deals of the U.S. with the likes of India, certainly with your part of the world, uh, the Australasian side. But you know, one of the big issues has always been, as we've seen in the past, trying to actually get hold of a, a, a concrete trade deal typically takes a matter of years rather than months. So it may well be possible for the UK to actually, you know, to, to achieve something in the longer run. But over the course of the next, you know, several years, it could well be that you know, net exports for the UK get absolutely hammered because ultimately the European Union is our most important trading partner. So I think, you know, from a, from a, an investor perspective, they really, really, really want to see a trade deal. I mean, ultimately, if we go back to last year. Um, you're looking at how the pound traded literally it came down to how how the latest news related to whether or not there's going to be Brexit or no Brexit, or whether it's going to be a soft Brexit or a hard Brexit. Well, now we know we've got Brexit, but we still have the uncertainty about whether it's going to be with a trade deal or without a trade deal. So it is going to be a key focal point, I think, once markets start shifting towards looking at that, rather than, let's be honest at the moment, almost solely concentrating upon what's happening to the uh, the coronavirus numbers. Um, Right. What else have we got or should we be mentioning? Um, I suppose I should mention the fact that uh, looking at slightly positive news out of Canada, uh, there's no change out of the Bank of Canada in its latest meeting in terms of interest rates, but it does seem to be dipping its toe in the water of looking a little bit more optimistic about way things are going. Canada, like most of the world, has been hit quite hard by the coronavirus, but um, they have announced now that they'll be reducing their frequency of term repo operations to once a week uh, rather than twice a week. And they're also going to cut the uh, the program, which purchases involves purchasing bankers acceptances uh, to buy weekly from every every, every week. So you know, it's it's one of these, I suppose, central banks part of the G7 which investors do look at, and they're obviously taking the view now that perhaps the worst is over, markets are starting to function that much better than they did before, and so you know watch this space the build up. We'll see other central banks doing the same sort of thing, uh, and I suppose on that note, I mean. In um, terms of, like, you know, Brian and Mark, your side of the world, is there anything coming out, because I mean, you know, like me, the likes of the Fed have boosted their balance sheet like there's no tomorrow, uh, the RBA's been doing its own stuff, has there been anything coming out of there which suggests that, I know mentioned RBA earlier being a little bit more optimistic, or perhaps quite a lot more optimistic, is there anything which suggests that they're actually getting to the stage whereby they're thinking about scaling down their, you know, their monetary operations because they're believing now that they're getting past the worst?
2: Not in the US. Hmm.
1: And, not in uh, the US. Not really no. here either. Um, yeah. you know, I, I think they're just, uh, you know, playing it uh, very cautious uh, and and hoping that what they've got in place uh, has the desired effect. But they're not going to um, guarantee, you know, assume that's going to happen just yet. Uh,
2: here, um, uh, you know, troubles are there. They're, description of uh, future troubles are are still very uh, severe so until they start toning down their outlook or improving their outlook um it's going it, there's yeah there's no indication yet of uh, any light at the end of the monetary policy tunnel
1: yeah so what i are actually seeing yeah. in india is um they're, they're quite explicitly saying we don't really care about uh inflation if, if inflation picks up um that's not really our number one focus at the moment we just want to you know get get uh, activity uh, you know recovering to some extent
0: yeah perhaps that's an issue of another podcast but i think it's it's, you're right i mean it's going to be interesting as and when we do start to get inflation coming back for whatever reason will the central banks now react to it or do they take the view that we've got to make sure first that these economies have actually turned the corner okay right well anyone for anything else i think that's it that sounds promising Okay, thanks. So um, that's it for today, then. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, remember, you can always keep on top of all the key data and events in Econiday's global economic calendar. From Mark, Brian and myself, thanks as always for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.